In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Cologne on the trail of the German elections. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but currently in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. And indeed in Washington and Berlin. This week, we'll assess Boris Johnson's meeting with Joe Biden, where there was a clear mismatch in the post-encounter briefings. And we'll hear from Olaf Scholz, potentially the next German leader, on what he might say to Boris Johnson on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we'll hear from former Taoiseach Enda Kenny on the legacy of Angela Merkel and how and why she supported Ireland's position after the Brexit referendum. We'll also hear from Ireland's Commissioner Mairead McGuinness on how financial services and climate change cooperation could pave the way to getting over Brexit tensions. But first, Tony, where you are in Cologne at the moment... You've been catching up with the lead man in the German election race. Yes, indeed, Colm. Uh, Olaf Schulz is the, the, the lead candidate for the SPD, the Social Democrats. And by a strange quirk of fate, he finds himself in pole position to become the, the next chancellor. Now, obviously, all the caveats about polls apply, but the SPD has enjoyed a steady lead in the last uh, couple of weeks in the run-up to Sunday's German election. Uh, of course, this election is con- entirely overshadowed by the fact that Angela Merkel is leaving office after 16 crisis-filled years, and there's been lots of tributes to her uh, in recent days. We- we'll hear from Enda Kenny shortly on his thoughts about her, her role and her reign. But uh, Olaf Scholz has been uh, in Cologne at the final rally of the SPD. The campaign is winding down today, being Friday, ahead of Sunday's vote. Uh, and he delivered a speech to supporters in the centre of Cologne near the, the Duomo, the cathedral. Um, and I managed to speak to him afterwards briefly uh, about what he might say to Boris Johnson on the implementation of the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol if he was elected Chancellor. And here's what he had to say. What message would you have to Boris Johnson as Chancellor in terms of implementing the Brexit withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol? As Chancellor, what message would you give Boris Johnson? The European Union is working together with Ireland in, in all the questions that are important for the country. This was always something, uh, this was always an activity I supported also with my colleagues uh, from from the member states and the finance ministers and this will be the political strategy of Europe for the future. We will make, um, we will develop a political strategy that is good for Ireland and for peace. Ola Schultz, Tony sounding very much like the continuity candidate from Angela Merkel as he's styled himself throughout this campaign. People even remarking on his hand gestures mirroring those of Angela Merkel. But what he had to say there about 
working with Ireland, working in the interests of peace. This is the hymn sheet Germany has been singing from throughout. I suppose in saying that, we have to look back at Angela Merkel, who's about to depart the stage. Well, not immediately after Sunday, because they'll have to form a government. But at the same time, people have been reflecting on Merkel's Brexit legacy. And I suppose we should probably do that, this being Brexit Republic. Any thoughts yourself on the many councils you've attended with Angela Merkel playing a conciliatory role, perhaps? Yes, she she was always the, the figure that everyone looked to at the end of the night during those hot and heavy European councils over the years, especially around the bailout when the financial crisis hit and the Eurozone debt crisis hit. There was a clamour, you'll recall, for Europe to step in, step in with a big bazooka um, to create some big bailout fund that would rescue countries like Greece and then later Ireland and Portugal and to a lesser extent Spain. And of course, nobody could get that off the ground until Germany said gave, gave their consent. And Angela Merkel certainly took her time uh, back in those days before she did step in to say, yes, we, we need to do that. And ultimately, I think she was deeply constrained by the German establishment, by the Bundestag, by the constitutional situation in Germany. They have a constitutional debt break. You know, a, a deeply embedded antipathy towards profligacy and moral hazard. So you could argue that she had a lot to contend with when she when she had to make those decisions. But eventually she did, you know, sign up to those big bailout packages, I think, in a sense, by telling people back in Germany that there was no alternative. The Eurozone and potentially the Euro the European Union would suffer a mortal blow if, the if they didn't step in. Um, again, we saw her reaction in the migration crisis in 2015. She took a lot quicker, I think, to make up her mind in, in that situation. I guess there were people moving up through the Balkans. There wasn't a lot of time. And that was a very bold and, and quite brave, you could say, political decision, which she paid quite a heavy price for. Um, but on Brexit, I think, you know, just talking to people in the past week, I think she was really shocked by the Brexit result um, and w was really not expecting it. Uh, and then I think went about making sure that the EU stayed together, that there was unity and that, uh, you know, more countries would not peel off like Britain had done. When it came to Ireland, she was one of the first people Enda Kenny met. I think the first foreign leader he met after the referendum, he travelled to Berlin on the 16th, on the 12th of July 2016. And he famously drew a map of Ireland for Chancellor Merkel, pointing out where all the, the border crossings were and how difficult it would be to police those. Well, we can hear now from Enda Kenny himself on his reflections of Angela Merkel, his time knowing her politically and those meetings that he had with her over the bailouts, Greece and Ireland, and also on Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. He was speaking on Monday to RTE's Western correspondent, Pat McGrath, in Castlebar. What role did she play on the events surrounding the EU IMF bailout? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that, that Europe at the time was very badly prepared and very ill-equipped to deal with what happened in Ireland and later with what happened in Greece. Um, and this was a situation for which Europe was, uh, as I say, ill-prepared. So if, what was her influence? 
I think it was a restraining influence because some of the partners around that table would have been very quick to make propositions uh, that were simply not acceptable to Ireland in any circumstances. And if you were looking at the four principles of the European Union and the cohesion of the European Union and the development of the Eurozone, Angela Merkel uh, as Chancellor had a restraining role uh, from what some of the others might want to have, uh, to have implemented and quickly. For instance, the first meeting I attended uh, at the European Council very shortly after having been elected as Taoiseach was the demand for an increase in Ireland's corporate tax rate at the time. Was she an ally to you then? Well, I think from my, from my uh, dealing with her uh, as opposition leaders of parties, she began to understand that you know, Ireland were serious about the situation that the country had inherited. Um, and I think another element of this that's often, often missed was the very powerful working relationship that Minister Michael Noonan had with Wolfgang Schauble was a really influential finance minister at European level. Uh, and when it came down to it, Schauble uh, actually said that you know, the Irish were prepared to take charge of their programme. So while, to all intents and purposes, you had lost your economic sovereignty with the Troika, IMF and European Commission being here, we still maintained, because of that kind of relationship, an element of working independence in having to make difficult decisions uh, but at the same time, his influence uh, and, and, uh, and cooperation with Michael Noonan was an important element for me as Taoiseach to be able to relate to the German Chancellor who had all of these problems on her table as well. And given that she came and comes from Germany, obviously, she understood the difficulties having been born and reared in East Germany, but also the constraints and the restraints that are upon any German leader because the Bundestag is really important. Uh, and she said on many occasions, this will not go through uh, on a vote in the Bundestag. It's not acceptable. Now you may argue that she might say that because she mightn't want to deal with other countries on particular points. But the, the constraint upon a German chancellor is effectively the Bundestag. If they don't accept it, it won't, it won't, it won't run. And in terms of the bailout, there might be some criticism of Angela Merkel that she was safeguarding the bigger banks in France and Germany and as a result the terms which we were put under were more strenuous, tougher mm. uh, terms. Is that a fair mm. assessment? Well Ireland were forced out the gap in this and as I said Europe was very ill-equipped to deal with these kind of situations um, and of course uh, she, was, she was going to have to protect her own position insofar as, as German and French uh, German banks were concerned in particular. But there were other issues like loan maturities and interest rate reductions and promissory notes where a great deal of haggling and discussion and detailed complicated talks took place uh, and we came through that. Uh, but when, when we did exit the, the, um, the bailout programme in December 2013, it wasn't a case of that being the end of the road, it was a case of a major step in the right direction uh, and the government decided you would continue with the programme of disciplined management uh, to put in place what is now the basis of this country's economic sovereignty and economic strength, which has stood to us through, uh, through, uh, through COVID. And if things were on a cliff edge here at times, they were on a knife edge in Greece as well, with like 
down to the wire discussions on Greece yes, and the, were, and the yeah, Eurozone. Yeah. She, she played a role there. Yes, she well, did. T- talk to me a bit about your, your memories at that time. <laughs> well, the thing was that at European Council meetings, papers would be circulated um, indicating that Greece was on the road to recovery and that another couple of billion would put them in the right spot. Um, and then you had the, a case of where three elections were fought on the basis of debt reduction, that the national debt would be written off. This was never going to happen. Um, and while uh, Angela Merkel herself was blamed in many cases for, the ruina- for what might be the ruination of Greece, the expulsion of Greece from the European Union and the Eurozone, at the end of the day, when the Bundestag voted for the third bailout, it was the support that she got from her Minister for Finance that enabled that to go through. And Greece has since learned its lesson, no more than we did, uh, of, of prudent management of an economy, investment in the right quarters, job creation, and so on, uh, to move it on. So, so in that sense, I remember the European Council meeting where she was really strident in saying that we do not want this to fracture and break up now. Um, and so a third bailout instead of a, a temporary expulsion was what happened in terms of Greece. My view of her, uh, uh, both as, a, as Chancellor and as leader of her country, um, was that she, was, she would not be party to decisions that were going to break up very shortly afterwards. In other words, that the, the real problem was being swept under the carpet. Uh, when, when she was faced with these issues, she wanted to know the extent of the problem and how it might be sorted out over whatever period. Which, if you like, was... Um, of assistance to Ireland in our case with loan maturities, interest rate reductions and the uh, promissory notes at the time. And that uh, steer, that outlook, I suppose, came into play again when a few years later we were faced with Brexit. There's a story told apparently of you drawing a map and showing her all the border crossings. Is that, is that true? Did that happen? That is true. It wasn't the only map I drew for other leaders as well. Because if somebody says to you, well, we've, you know, I want to talk to you about the, the, the problem on the border with Hungary, you, you, you won't be acquainted with that. But uh, herself having been reared in, 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 in East Germany and understanding what that border was, which was a fence all the way to the, to the North Sea, um, she was really interested in, the, in, in the, the looseness of the situation here, where there wasn't a defined, um, a, a defined fence line or, or, or you know, a border border obstruction uh, between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Um, and there were three things that were sacrosanct there that we had agreed with Cameron in the event that the referendum would not would, would not be carried, uh, or that, that the situation would be that Britain would stay with the Union, uh, was the full implementation of Good Friday, the um, continuation of the common travel arrangement, and no hard border. Um, and she was very supportive of all of that. And on any occasion uh, where the issue of Ireland came up in terms of this referendum, we would, this was always referred to the fact that um, the, the chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said, I am appointed by the European Council. I will be the voice of Ireland in these discussions, and I will report back to the European Council as needs be on each and every issue. But those three issues were accepted by the European Union. They were accepted by Prime Minister Cameron, and by Prime Minister May subsequently, and things evolved on from there. So from Angela Merkel's point of view, she was really supportive of Ireland as a country that was an example to others 
of how if you, if you make difficult decisions in the interest of having a thriving economy and job creation, this can happen. Um, and she would not stand for any hard border. She stood for full implementation of Good Friday and for a continuation of the travel, uh, the travel arrangement. Am I getting a sense from you that you feel there was a kind of a, a payback then come the Brexit negotiations because of the country having put its shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, during the financial crisis a few years earlier? Was, had you a sense of that? Not so much a payback, but she, she did often hold out Ireland as an example and publicly of a small country that had made progress. In fact, any time that we met, it was always, it was always um, a thing that I did was to give her the updated um, economic statistics for our country, which she would absorb very quickly and see the progress that, that was being made. Um, but it's, it's important to remember that Ireland wasn't negotiating with Britain here. Ireland was being negotiated for by the European Union. So she, among all the other leaders, understood fully what was really important from an Irish perspective and stood by that. So that was Enda Kenny, Ireland's former Taoiseach there speaking about his knowledge of Angela Merkel and his dealings with her on Brexit, amongst other things. Tony, does it make a difference in terms of Europe's approach to Brexit? I mean, this is a, a kind of a joint decision, but Germany's role within Brexit has had been, I suppose, a lot was expected of it from the UK side. That never came to fruition with the German manufacturing industry never really raising the clamour the UK thought it might, and Angela Merkel similarly not watering down the European approach to Brexit as the UK thought it might. But with Olaf Scholz potentially putting together a coalition, is there anything, uh, any indication we have at this stage that anything might be any different, or will it be same as it ever was? Yes, same as it ever was. The the, the talking heads uh, line uh, <laughs> would be fairly accurate. I mean, I suppose the first question you would have to ask is, what will Britain's response be to a new German chancellor? They will undoubtedly want to try and change the narrative to see this perhaps as a as a moment for a reset or, or a rethink in how the EU is applying the protocol, which of course is the the, the central complaint of the UK. But you'd have to say, like, at, at what point would any UK minister have been able to interact with Olaf Schulz, the German finance minister, up to up to now? They're out of the European Union. They're, they would not be taking part in any ministerial meetings. Uh, he, he's from the centre left. Um, so, you know, those bridges are going to have to be built from a distance if the UK wants to do that. Um, I think he will continue Angela Merkel's policy, which was to keep the EU united to defend the single market, uh, but to be pragmatic and flexible where the Commission can be when it comes to the protocol, implementing the protocol. Remember, member states have given Maros Shevchevic a clear mandate to keep talking to the UK, to trying to find pragmatic, flexible solutions that will make the protocol acceptable or more acceptable to businesses in Northern Ireland and to try and steer the process away from these high temperature issues that David Frost keeps throwing in, such as sovereignty, ripping the ECJ out of the whole picture. Um, I, I have no doubt that Olaf Schulz, if elected chancellor, will will continue that that policy, mainly because there's, you know, he doesn't want to spend any political energy in changing it. He's going to have enough on his plate domestically. Domestically in Germany, there are some major issues which people are talking about now that perhaps Angela Merkel neglected over the years, such as 
uh, infrastructure, you know, the digital uh, digitization of the German economy and the private and public sectors, um, you know, currently and vividly the whole supply chain issue, which is a really difficult one for Germany. It's such an export-led economy. Then they have a they have big questions to answer over foreign policy, defense. Are they going to renew their fleet of tornado fighter jets? Uh, what will they recalibrate or rethink their relationship to China, which of course has been a kind of a kid gloves approach due to the exposure of German companies to the Chinese market. So he's going to have a lot on his plate. Um, and I don't think he's going to want to waste or take up valuable time in having a complete rethink on how the commission should handle the protocol issue. Right. The protocol is something you were writing about uh, earlier today as we record this on Friday. The uh, command paper issued by the UK, uh, David Frost said that, you know, the conditions were there to trigger Article 16 as it stands at the moment. The European Union had been making, I suppose, conciliatory noises up until now. There was the suspending of the legal action. There was, you know, a, a, a tone of saying, look, well, well, we'll try and find solutions within the protocol, but a less than confrontational approach taken here to four. But there is within that velvet glove some steel showing, as you were writing earlier. That's right. The, I suppose the question really is about Article 16 because David Frost keeps threatening to trigger Article 16. Um, the Commission have seen it as, you know, a, a clear and present danger. And while they haven't been outlining to member states what exactly their plans would be in terms of responding to any move in that direction by the UK, they're certainly looking at options internally and they have drawn up uh, what you might call a hierarchy of response. Um, the first thing being uh, legal action against the UK. The, the point that has been made to me is that the UK and David Frost keep saying the conditions for triggering Article 16 have already been met. The European Commission believes that those conditions haven't been met, um, that the UK can't just decide that they want to trigger Article 16 in that fashion. So if they did, then the Commission would certainly take legal action against the UK. Then they could move to arbitration um, under the withdrawal agreement to try and challenge uh, the UK's move. And the more you go up the, the hierarchy, the more serious it gets. Uh, so in other words, they could talk about trade measures, retaliatory trade measures through the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, that would obviously be a clear escalation, but certainly they reserve they're reserving those particular bullets in the chamber if the UK does um, decide to trigger uh, Article 16. Um, we don't know if it's if it's bluster on David Frost's part, but certainly um, he's, he's sort of made the threat often enough and the Conservative Party conference is coming up soon. So the feeling is that Boris Johnson will want to throw some red meat to the backbenchers on, on Brexit and on the protocol. Uh, so who knows what, what might happen. Um, but of course, triggering Article 16 is is not just a carte blanche you know it's you know you have to have a very good reason to do it it has to cause the minimum disruption to the operation of the protocol and it has to be a temporary measure so um you know it, it's trigger article 16 and then what you know that's the question for the uk to, to think about all right that's great tony we're going to park it there and we'll be back in a moment with sean whelan Sean, the supply chain issue, I suppose people might be forgiven for thinking we've developed a slight obsession with this, but only because it is current 
And let's break it into two parts this week and start with the issue of truck drivers, which we visited before, but it has come to a head. Free movement of people is not what the people voted for, but actually empty shelves is not what they voted for either. No, it's not. And and even more pressing, empty petrol tanks. That is the story uh, of today uh, here in the United Kingdom because... A small number, it has to be said, a small number of petrol stations have closed because they couldn't get deliveries of petrol or diesel to the forecourts. Now, Britain, as we all know, is a North Sea oil-producing country. It's not like they're going to run out of uh, oil, certainly not uh, in the uh, immediate future. But there is a problem getting it to the petrol stations, and that's because of that driver shortage, which we've spoken about quite a lot on this podcast. But it's now manifesting itself, and what we're seeing on the television screens and on the front pages of pretty much all of the newspapers here are exactly the type of things that they really don't like to see uh, in Downing Street. And that is uh, pictures of petrol pumps uh, with no petrol coming out of them and television pictures of queues of cars lining up to try and buy petrol. Now, the ministers have been going out on the media saying there is no need to panic, which, of course, normally leads to people saying there's a reason to panic. Uh, And so we have seen more and more people joining queues to buy petrol and diesel uh, during the course of Friday when we're recording this uh, podcast. But it all does come down to this driver shortage, which has been affecting all sectors in the UK. The food industry have been talking about it uh, quite a lot. Uh, But anybody who's relying on truck drivers to deliver products Uh, to factories for just-in-time assembly in particular. They're really put to the pin of their collars. Any manager involved in the transport sector is really earning their pay here in Britain at the moment. Uh, We're even hearing stories of people who drive the bin lorries for the local councils being approached to to get higher wages going off driving for the likes of Tesco or indeed BP, uh, the oil company, uh, and the contractors that they use. So there's a finite number of drivers here. It's much less than they would like it to be. And supply and demand in the market is starting to force up prices, uh, as in wages that are being paid to the drivers, which is great for the drivers, of course. uh, But it is adding to some of the inflationary pressures here as well and has some of the uh, economists a bit jittery. But the real jitters are right at the very top of politics uh, because the idea of people queuing for petrol, having uh, shortages of food in the supermarkets, threats to the Christmas supply chains uh, that we've been hearing about for several weeks now, and the political pressure to do something to get more drivers in in the short term starting to become untenable. Right. And raising the rates of pay for drivers is fine to reactivate that cohort of the workforce who found the hours of driving antisocial with very little payoff. In fact, I think it, it, it was as much worth their while to stack shelves in the supermarket rather than deliver goods to it. Such had the price of driver rates being driven down by the big supermarkets who are now suffering from those shortages. But there is a finite number of drivers within the UK What about attracting people from outside of the UK? The government had set its face against that until now. Are there signs of cracks appearing in that resolve? Well, there are. um, As we're recording this uh, Friday afternoon, the Financial Times is reporting that uh, Boris Johnson is said to have lost patience with the situation and uh, is instructing ministers to make whatever arrangements are necessary to enable more drivers to come back in from the European Union. We have to await um, proper confirmation of that one. Uh, at the time of uh, this recording. Uh, But that does seem to be the uh, most immediate response that they could make. As you say, uh, raising pay rates 
uh, ought to have um, an effect by making the trade more attractive to some people to come back, although there's quite a lot of scepticism uh, that people are going to come back uh, into it. Uh, it's a tough old station. Uh, the government have recently relaxed the restrictions on the amount of hours drivers can work uh, as one way of trying to uh, cope with the shortages, but that's just provoked a reaction from the drivers who said, look, it's hard enough uh, of a gig as it is we don't want to work these extra hours and it's certainly not a sustainable solution uh, the other one is to get more drivers through the driving tests and that has been uh, severely disrupted by the covid pandemic as you can imagine both the training and the actual testing they've tweaked the testing regime uh, so there's only i think one test that has to be taken instead of two which frees up the amount of slots that driving testers uh, are have to be engaged in but again Growing drivers like that uh, takes time. It takes months to train people, and they don't really have months. We're facing supply shortages right now. It may be fine for a new driver to come out with higher wages next March, but what about my supermarket shopping this weekend? What about filling the tank of my car to drive to the supermarket today? So there's real short-term pressures in the system, and the quickest way that they might be able to get qualified, experienced drivers into the system would be to uh, open uh, recruitment once again to East European drivers, the very people that were blamed for driving down uh, prices in the truck driving industry in the UK. And, and this is where it becomes really politically toxic because part of the appeal both of Brexit and also of the Conservative Party in the last general election where they were competing for those famous red wall seats is to say we can drive up wages as a benefit of Brexit, and yet the short-term crunch in the supply chain of drivers and the availability of drivers uh, to service the wider industrial supply chains means that one of the key promises of Brexit is now under severe political pressure. Are they going to have to right. buckle on this one just to get over the short-term hump? All right. Although there might be a sweet spot for those same Eastern European drivers, if the rates go up and they're still needed, then you've got people coming back to work in the UK on, on better rates than they were before. If that was the only problem in the supply chain, Sean, that might be enough to worry about. But there are other issues, too. Yeah, there's, uh, there's other issues. I mean, there are genuine uh, COVID problems. There's also the uh, rising gas uh, price problem. Uh, that that uh, has led to this shutdown of fertilizer plants this week, and one of their byproducts of the fertilizer industry is uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, the very stuff that the climate change uh, conferences are designed to get out of the atmosphere, but actually bottled CO2 in its industrial uh, form uh, is an extremely widely used gas. I had no idea uh, of the number of applications it was used in, but uh, suddenly uh, it's become a critical supply issue for uh, a lot of industries from coolants and nuclear plants to uh, hospital use, but most particularly in the food industry where they use fizzy drinks and fizzy drinks it puts the fizz in, in your uh, pop. It also drives the beer from the keg to the uh, glass. Really important issue, that one. Uh, it also is used in packaging food as a shelf life extender. Uh, we were down with a, a pig farmer and processor during the week. And he was explaining to us that uh, from the time you kill an animal to uh, putting the meat out on the shelf, it's got about a four-day uh, shelf life. But because of industrial production and distribution through supermarkets, it's going to be hitting those shelves on the day that it uh, basically uh, has hit its sell-by date. So by using uh, carbon dioxide as a little squirt of that into the cellophane 
packaging around the meat, you get an extension of three or four days uh, on the shelf life of the meat. And that's important because you know, we all want fresh meat when we buy it and stuff that's going to last a day or two in the fridge when we bring it home. But a shortage of that uh, is, is proving very problematic for the, uh, for the meat industry in particular. Also because quite a few of the abattoirs use CO2 gas to power the humane killers that they use for stunning the animals in the slaughter process. Um, this is probably not ideal breakfast time listening in a podcast, but again, there's so many uh, industrial uses of this gas that we don't think about. And about half of the supply has come from two very big American-owned fertilizer plants up in the northwest of the country. And because the gas price has gone uh, really high, it's tripled since the start of the year, they say it's uneconomic to produce fertilizer. So the government had to come into uh, out with an emergency solution to pay them, to subsidize them, to produce CO2, and are going to spend up to £20 million to keep these plants turning for the next three weeks and hope that the gas price starts to nudge down uh, to more economic levels. But most of the gas industry analysts don't think that's going to happen. We're seeing a lot of um, gas companies uh, starting to go bust here in the UK. There's uh, another one uh, happened just before lunch today. These are not factors of Brexit. Um, these are factors of the world gas price uh, hitting the structure of the energy market in the United Kingdom and uh, leading to calls for the government to effectively bail out uh, the gas distribution industry uh, in Britain, create a bad bank for all of the uh, contracts that are going to uh, be uneconomical, which are uneconomical to operate at the moment, which of course will put a lot of pressure on them, uh, creating what for an Irish audience would amount to a NAMA for gas companies. Uh, but again, the, the government doesn't want to get sucked down that route because they're having to spend more and more money um, at a time when the economy is, is fragile enough. I mean, you know, there is a, a recovery coming, but there's all kinds of little pressure points uh, throughout the system and uh, they're starting to manifest themselves now and the, the blows are coming any one of them perhaps not that big but the cumulative effect it, it, it does remind one of that idea of the butterfly flapping its wings in the south pacific causing a, a hurricane in the north atlantic uh, the, the storm is kind of uh, heading for the uk now you do see thinner uh, supplies on the shelves uh, of the supermarkets. We are seeing the pictures, at least, of the uh, queues outside petrol stations, although my local BP station here in London uh, absolutely fine today. But you do get more and more of an impression that things are starting to slip out of control. And this is why I think the government uh, are under so much pressure to act. Plus, remember, uh, they've got the Conservative Party conference coming up um, on Sunday week. So uh, that's not a great time for them. They can't really be seen to be celebrating and promoting the party at a time that people wouldn't be able to get uh, stuff out of supermarkets or be queuing for, for petrol. So you can see the sure. pressures that are on for political action to come about now. Well, seeing as you've steered the juggernaut back to politics, Sean, when there are domestic woes, one of the things that generally helps is cause for maybe a spot of international optimism. I mean... People may have been looking at Boris Johnson's trip to uh, the United States to generate a bit of that. I suppose there was an international win for the UK with their security cooperation pact between themselves, Australia, the US, which had, had its own causes of tension with France, which are overlaid on the existing Brexit tensions. But if people were hoping for a green light or good news on a UK-US trade deal, they weren't necessarily treated to that this week. 
No, they weren't. Uh, Mr. Johnson uh, crossed the Atlantic for the uh, UN General Assembly, like so many other international leaders. Uh, but he, of course, wanted to, to get a, a bilateral meeting with President Biden uh, in the White House. Uh, he got that. But as you say, this uh, elusive uh, trade deal with the Americans uh, has proved to be uh, elusive again. And indeed, uh, once again, Joe Biden reiterated his strong support for the Good Friday Agreement and his opposition to any tinkering or renegotiating or anything else to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, that would have an impact on the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Um, So he was saying to them, look, you're definitely not getting anything until this gets sorted out. Uh, But even beyond that, there's a a reluctance um, on the part of the Americans to enter into trade deals generally. Um, They've a lot on their plate domestically. They want to concentrate on the domestic economy. And uh, that, I think, is where the um, political capital uh, is going to be expended uh, by President Biden. He's got a very large tax reform uh, agenda that he needs to get through the Congress. And uh, frankly, I'm not sure he has the uh, political bandwidth or the political capital available to him to uh, start doing what essentially amounts to a favour to the British uh, and uh, having a trade deal Uh, with them. Uh, Representative Brendan Boyle uh, was out during the week uh, pointing out that Britain is about 2.5% of America's foreign trade, uh, which is about the same as Vietnam, whereas Canada and Mexico uh, amount to 30, 3-0% of American trade. So he said, look, our focus is going to be there. You you go where the big numbers are. And uh, uh, besides, as we know, the tariff rates on transatlantic trade are extremely low uh, anyway. So where is the gains uh, from doing a a big trade deal like that? Perhaps they can do sectoral uh, deals with the Americans. But again, these things are very complicated. They take a long time. Uh, And this idea that uh, Britain would simply uh, waltz into a a trade deal with America was always regarded by the European side uh, as pretty fanciful and also by quite a lot on the American side uh, as well. You know, it's not that they're intrinsically opposed to doing a trade deal with the British. It's just that uh, it's a a difficult thing to do. And the politics of it tend to be very difficult, Uh, not just on the American side, where we see lots of lobbying from the industrial sector and also from the trade unions, issues that have, uh, to a large extent, scuppered the old TTIP trade deal that the European Union was trying to get on from uh, 2013, but also on the British side, where they are concerned about uh, opening up their food and agriculture sector to uh, imports from America and also... Not uh, to mention the the health health service. Exactly, not to mention the health service. So again, there's a lot of touchstone issues there that become very politically difficult. Uh, If this stuff was easy to do, it would have been done a long time ago, I think, uh, either bilaterally or with the uh, EU, US through TTIP. The British have also talked about uh, joining this um, US-Canada-Mexico trade agreement. Um, the Americans very tersely pointed out to them that that treaty doesn't include an accession clause. So unlike, say, joining the European Union, where there are uh, rules and criteria set out for who can join, there's no such provisions for joining uh, the US-Canada-Mexico agreement, unless you're one of those three countries, uh, basically you're not in. Uh, if there was an accession clause to that, you know, why wouldn't the European Union try and get a, a trade deal with North America uh, by simply trying to join that regional trade grouping. Uh, 
Um, we've also seen where the British have been trying to put their focus on joining the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, um, which China uh, has apparently uh, either talked about or actually gone and applied to join as well, which looks like a bit of trolling in the wake of that Australia-America-British uh, trade deal. Um, so, you know, maybe the European Union ought to, to uh, take a leaf out of that book and uh, troll the British by applying to join the USMCA as well. I don't think that's a serious proposal uh, at all. But certainly, so uh, he, with, Johnson, his, with his tongue firmly lodged in his cheek. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. I, I don't think, uh, I, I mean, Mr. Johnson has come back a little bit chastened from uh, that visit and sort of has admitted to reporters that there isn't going to be a trade deal uh, with the Americans. He's also admitted to them uh, on the way back on the plane, apparently, um, that there isn't going to be a bridge or tunnel uh, to Northern Ireland. He hasn't entirely given up hope for, of it as a, as a good idea, but realistically, he said, uh, it ain't going to happen. That was something that uh, was being briefed heavily by uh, his next-door neighbour in number 11, uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, no money for it. Uh, there's too much money uh, being drained out of the system um, to prop up the economy as it stands. I mean, look at all these subsidies that are having to be handed out left, right and centre just to keep the show on the road at the moment. There's, there's a lot of pressure on the British Exchequer and spending billions on a bridge uh, to Ireland. Um, never really a runner. And now they're finally admitting it. OK, well, at the risk of a clumsy segue here, Sean, somebody who sounded like they were optimistic about bridges being built between Europe and the UK on issues apart from Brexit, although there was at least some hope sounded and maybe uh, a call for leadership to be demonstrated. You've been talking to Mairead McGuinness, the European Commissioner with Responsibility for Financial Services. Where did you catch up with her? I caught up with her here in London because she's on a, a two-day visit uh, where she's meeting uh, people like the aforementioned Rishi Sunak, Chancellor of the Exchequer, a couple of other political leaders, uh, and also uh, some figures in the city of London uh, because, uh, of course, uh, financial services, the city of London is massive. It's certainly the, the biggest uh, financial centre uh, in this quarter of the, the, the world. Uh, and even though Britain has left the European Union, the European Union is still going to be doing a lot of business with the city of London. So in a way, I guess, uh, Commissioner McGuinness is looking to uh, move ahead from Brexit. I mean, the British papers say the EU is obsessed with relitigating Brexit. I'm not sure that's at all correct. Uh, certainly from uh, what Maureen McGuinness was telling me, uh, she is looking to move ahead, move uh, on to other areas, looking at some of the practical issues about how uh, financial services firms can trade, looking at some of the technology issues involved, looking at green finance uh, as well, a big area, and something that uh, she believes there can be great cooperation uh, between the uh, EU and the UK on. But I began by asking her the very obvious question, what was she doing in London? Well, we've a lot to talk about with our London friends. I've had a really good meeting with Chancellor Sunak about things that we have in common, like digital finance, money laundering concerns. And of course, the big issue is climate finance and the whole challenge of tackling climate change. And it's good to come to London and see that we have a lot in common Despite Brexit, there are things we need to talk to each other about and work together on. And I've been really pleased by that reaction because we have COP26 coming up in Glasgow. The European Union will be there. We'll be talking about what we're doing. And we want to work with the UK to make COP26 a success. Some people might be surprised to hear talk of 
cooperation and collaboration with the UK because they're still waiting for an equivalence ruling in the, the City of London about selling financial services directly out of here into uh, the European Union. But I guess there comes a point when you just have to look beyond the political fallout of Brexit itself and deal with the ongoing relationship. Look, I think that there is a, a political backdrop because Brexit is still not quite finished. When it comes to financial services, really it wasn't part of the Brexit story. So the City of London, the European financial system knew very well that we weren't going to discuss this as part of a withdrawal agreement or a future relationship. So we took action and some equivalence decisions that were really important for our financial stability. The UK did the same and we're not under pressure to change anything or to, if you like, further advance on the equivalent saga. In one sense, what we are measuring and being careful of is the UK's desire to deviate or diverge from uh, current rules. We have to watch that very carefully. Clearly, our rules will change too. There is one area where we are looking very closely at, which is the CCPs, a big part of the financial infrastructure. And there Can we have... Can you explain that for the well, audience? Okay, I mean, I, I, I'll put it this way. There's a part of our financial infrastructure called these centre clearing uh, parties, which CCPs, which are very significant. Uh, of course, when London was part of the EU system, they were core to the European Union. Now that London is outside, effectively in a third country, we have to take a decision as to whether, in the long term, it is sustainable for these entities to remain in London if they service the EU market. So that's something that we're taking stock of. Uh, the city, the industry knows what we've done. They have, uh, if you like, a time period, June 2022. Uh, and we're reflecting on what's right for Europe in the long term. And I suppose what Brexit has done, and maybe other developments at the geopolitical level, is ask the European Union to look at itself and our vulnerabilities, our strengths, and to see what we need to do, particularly in my role in the financial system, to make ourselves stronger in the long term. Because these CCPs, they're a, a bit of infrastructure, if you like, that were really important mm -hmm. for the EU, but are now outside of EU regulation. And, and that's the point, isn't it? They're, oh. they're free of EU regulation, as, as they might see it. Uh, and yet they're really critical for the European financial system. And that makes some people, particularly in Frankfurt, a bit nervous. Well, I think just to be very clear, there is still regulation, there is oversight at the EU level. So I think that's really important for us. And that's why we have some comfort at the moment. What we're doing in our analysis is about not, if you like, planning for the good times. It's what would happen if there was a crisis. To some extent, it's highly unlikely, but if it did happen, it would be high impact. Um, so financial stability is one of the titles I, I carry. We take that very seriously. So we're looking to see what is in our best interests going forward when it comes to financial stability. Equally, the City of London is big, will remain big, but we have to take care of our own interests. And I think there is an understanding of that within the financial community. Clearly, no one likes change, but Brexit is about change. Uh, and we made changes initially on January the 1st. Everything has been calm and smooth, so that's really good. The financial world likes certainty. But there is a future to be looked at. So I'm also listening when I'm in London as to what the sense is amongst the financial industry, the political world. Uh, and it's a good time to catch up after so long not being able to travel, not being able to meet people. Do you have any sense that EU and um, financial services here, particularly City of London, will be able to coexist and carry on almost business as usual despite Brexit? 
Well, I think you can't have business as usual and Brexit. And I think if anyone thinks that that is the case, really, it's, it's not the reality of the way the world is. Um, the United Kingdom voted to leave. We've always said we accept and regret and we move on. But many things have changed, not only in the financial system, and more will change over time. But I think what's really important is that we're very clear and frank with each other. So when it comes to our obligations, withdrawal agreement, the trading relationship, that we honour our obligations. And I suppose in my conversations today uh, with various colleagues, what I'm saying is that around the protocol in Ireland and Northern Ireland, we're very clear that we want to address the difficulties, the practical difficulties, but we're also very clear in saying that the protocol will not be renegotiated. And I think it's very important to state that very clearly. I think our UK friends understand that. It may be a difficult message, but it's important because then we can focus on dealing with the difficult issues at ground level for businesses. And what was very clear from the visit of Vice President Sefcovic is that business uh, community leaders want to be listened to. They want to be heard in Northern Ireland. And Europe listened, or the union listened very carefully. And we're not deaf to these problems, so we are working to find solutions. And my view and belief is that within a few weeks' time, there will be a considerable package to address those really specific concerns. And I would hope that we can all move forward, implement, deal with the immediacy of the difficulties and allow Northern Ireland to get the value of being a full part of the United Kingdom and its market and a full part of the European Union and its market. So in a way, the opportunities for Northern Ireland, if they are grasped, are hugely significant. You say no renegotiation, as, as does everybody from the, the EU side and indeed some on the American side as well, but within the... Uh, uh, protocol, there are provisions for making some changes, some tweaks in uh, the, the items and how they, they operate. Is that the space that we're looking at now, making some adjustments perhaps rather than renegotiating? I think it's more basic than that and we're certainly not renegotiating, that, that isn't part of the conversation. We're actually listening to what the practical problems are on the ground, our own staff indeed from the business community, from the community leaders. Um, for example, on medicines, the European Union has no desire and would never deprive the people of Northern Ireland from supply of medicine. So we will fix that. That is essential. Uh, secondly, in relation to plant and animal health, this is a difficult area. But voices in Northern Ireland want an agreement, an SPS as we call it, so an agreement on these issues. I'm not so sure that uh, that's the view within the, the London, if you like, within the political bodies, but I, I would ask them to look at that because it would be a big part of the solution. But for all problems, there are solutions. But for us, and it, I think again to be very clear, we do not see any solutions emerging from opening everything to renegotiation. It took a lot of time, effort, political will, member states, uh, you know, the United Kingdom. We worked long and hard at this. Um, the deal is ratified by the Houses of Parliament here in the United Kingdom. And in fact, it was negotiated by the British Prime Minister. So I think on all sides, there's an understanding that whatever difficulties we have, and, and relationships are, are, aren't always easy, that we have a responsibility to deliver, not for our own needs, but for Northern Ireland and the people in Northern Ireland, the business communities, and to allow 
allow difficult relationships, maybe not helped by Brexit, to come together again and realise that this is something we all have to work with, live with, and we have to solve the problems as they exist on the ground. And I would really stress that the effort in Brussels, if you like, led by Maros Sefcovic to find practical solutions and to bring our member states with us on this is immense. And I believe we will deliver on that in finding solutions. One final area, I guess, is uh, here in Britain, we're experiencing a lot of supply chain issues. The gas crisis is impacting here particularly hard, but also truck drivers, shortage of workers, just basic supply of foodstuffs into the shops. Do you think that difficult situation they're facing might make the government a little bit more inclined to do things like look at an SPS deal, a few other tweaks and changes to their own uh, dealings with the European Union? Look, I think there's a lot of moving parts here. It is quite extraordinary, the energy pressure, the labour pressure, but even in, Euro in the European Union there are pressures in the labour market. So perhaps there's something happening there that we all need to watch very carefully. I can't second guess what these pressures will mean in terms of political response in the United Kingdom. But what I would say is, despite all our difficulties, and it hasn't been easy since 2016, we are, you know, are duty-bound to work together, despite our differences, to find solutions rather than create problems. And I think when I'm here in London, I appreciate more and more that we have an awful lot of things in common, and we can achieve much more if we work together for this global effort which faces us. You know, if we think that COVID or Brexit were big problems to deal with, we have no idea of the immense challenge of climate change. And I do worry that with this energy pressure that there will be a resistance, and understandably, from people who feel that this is too much, they cannot bear the cost. So I think from a social, political, economic point of view, um, you know, the United Kingdom isn't part of the European Union, but it's very close to us. So we share common problems. We need to work with our friends in the US and other partners. At a time when there feels to be fragmentation in the geopolitical space, I think what Europe has done, and I think the President of the Commission has led on this, is to not react to the immediate. So we don't do knee-jerk. We do considered um, you know, responses to scenarios that arise to find solutions. And I suppose Europe is sometimes perceived in the room as the nice uh, the adult or whatever it's called, um, but we take that seriously. What we want to do on behalf of all of our member states is make sure that all our actions are focused on improving the lives of citizens, and I mean citizens in the UK as well. And at a time when the big challenge, and we're going to hear much more about this as we move forward into the end of this year, is climate change and its practical implications for societies and communities, we need global cooperation more than ever. So, as I said, despite a sense of fragmentation, we're going to have to find ways of working really well together. And as I visited London, I feel a real sense that that is also um, how my counterparts feel, that we'll have differences and we'll have tough conversations, but we have a common sense of duty to work on these big global challenges and to say that the financial system, of which I now have responsibility at an EU level, is pivotal to us delivering on the European Green Deal. We need vast amount of private capital to move towards what is sustainable. We've done a lot of work which we're happy to share with EU, or rather with the, the UK and indeed the global partners, uh, so that we're all, if you like, singing off the same hymn sheet. 
If we don't succeed, so if we don't get this transition, this finance for this massive transition, which I think we really need to start talking about at a practical level, then we'll fail the next generation. And we're focusing on youth in the European Union next year. And I think it's a good time to listen to what they want. And they want a better future than is currently, uh, if you like, looming for them. And they want us to address these big, big questions. And the only way we'll do that is to work together. Final question. Boris Johnson is hosting the COP. Uh, as you know, is green and green finance in your own portfolio in particular, but environmental issues in general, the thing that might pull Europe and the UK together, a kind of a healing bam after Brexit? Well, I think the realisation that we're all in a terrible place together because, you know, bad things are going to happen around climate if we don't act. And the costs are going to be enormous, the amount of money we need to fund the transition, but the costs of inaction are greater. The impacts on the developing world, those who can least afford it, are enormous. So those who can afford to work together should do that now. And maybe you're right, maybe in this big global challenge we will see less of the differences, less of what divides us and more of what brings us together. My conversations with the Chancellor today were really, really positive. We only focused on the areas where we can and will work together. And I'm heartened by that. I think that's a really good sign from my, my side and indeed the Chancellor's side. Um, and you know, if we stay at the petty arguments about the past and who said and what said and how they said it, we won't move on. If Europe had stayed at that place in the darkest of days, we wouldn't be the European Union we are today. So I think in terms of leadership, um, you know, there's a challenge to us all. We were focused on COVID, we're now focused on recovery, but we really are focused on this big, big issue of changing how society functions, how we all live, work and play, of how we think about things, about the circular economy. And as much as it is challenging and, you know, that can be quite concerning and bring fears to people, there's a huge opportunity here as well. The world would be much better if we do these things. But we need money, we need global cooperation, and we need an effective COP. And I think we will have that. All right, that was Ireland's Commissioner Mairead McGuinness speaking to you. Sean, anything coming up for you in the coming week or so? Well, the things I'll be uh, keeping an eye on are the uh, party conferences. Uh, we've already mentioned the, the Conservative Party. That will be starting Sunday week. But this coming uh, Sunday, uh, in fact, even Saturday, the uh, Labour Party are having their conference down in Brighton, uh, where uh, there's going to be a big focus on the uh, future uh, of the leader, Keir Starmer. This is seen by quite a few people as a make-or-break conference for him. Uh, also, people looking at his response to a lot of the, these uh, Brexit and COVID-induced problems that are mounting up now and saying, look, here's a whole series of open goals for you to kick footballs into. Please go ahead and do it. Um, so we'll see if, if he does, uh, but that would be a big test for him. Uh, also, uh, some internal wrangling to try and establish credibility. The Parliament itself uh, is in recess for this uh, conference season, so it's all about the uh, internal politics of Britain uh, over the uh, next week or so and how these supply chain issues are going to start playing out as political issues. Right. Maybe Keir Starmer will take some heart from the fortunes of a uh, formerly perceived as boring social democratic prominent figure uh, in Germany and seeing how he gets on on Sunday that there is hope for people to revive the fortunes of a centre-left party in the most unexpected of circumstances when other parties uh, woes are there to be capitalised on. Tony, what's coming up uh, for you in the week ahead on the Brexit radar? Well, Colm, the, obviously the German election is on Sunday, so the results will be coming out on Monday. There'll be an exit poll on Sunday night, and then Monday will be a day of 
grinding of teeth to see what kind of coalition might emerge. Uh, there's talk of a Jamaica-style coalition, possibly um, green, red and black. That would be the Greens, the Liberal Democrats, the FDP and the CDU. Um, it's probably a less likely outcome because most people think that if they don't win the chancellorship, then they should go into opposition. So we are more likely looking at a traffic light coalition, perhaps uh, the SPD, the Greens and the Liberals um, or red, green, red, red, green, which would be SPD, uh, the, the left party, a radical left party and the Greens. Um, probably a, a fairly radical uh, option that would be. Um, so, yeah, there, there will be a lot of speculation as to what uh, the new government, when it is formed, which could take months, as we said, what will that mean for Germany and Europe and then ultimately uh, for Brexit? Um, then we're going to be looking closely to see if any of the proposals that Maro Shevchevich is going to be cooking up uh, on medicines and customs and agri-food checks and on uh, an enhanced role for Stormont, uh, when those proposals will take shape and what they might look like. Now, the, the indications are that he won't publish those um, ahead of the Tory party conference to try and keep the temperature down, but he may start sharing details of those with the member states. So if we get any indications what they look like, then uh, we can certainly... Uh, bring them to the appropriate forum, which is Brexit Republic, uh, next week. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoin, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Kildare this week. From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Cologne. Thanks for listening.